Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? Happy Monday. It's going well. Awesome. Yeah. Another Monday in paradise. Am I right? That's right. Oh, yes. <laughs> Avery, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. Yeah. So uh, Monday morning data chat. Uh, this morning, we got Avery Smith um, from Data Career Jumpstart. So uh, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to uh, give a quick intro? Yeah, for sure. So, hey everyone, my name is Avery Smith. Um, I run a bootcamp called Data Career Jumpstart where I help people break into data science. I also run a data analytics firm where I help uh, businesses kind of get started and do different data projects. And yeah, basically I'm just obsessed with data and I try to eat, breathe and drink as much data as I can and stoked to be on the show. That's a lot of data. <laughs> so. Awesome. So, um, yeah, we're going to uh, answer uh, career advice questions today. I think this is a good theme. Uh, I think Matt and I will take things more from a data engineering perspective. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so if the audience has questions on uh, uh, data careers, we're happy to um, make an attempt to answer your questions. So, um, but Avery, what, what, is, um, what are you finding out there in terms of um, advice you'd give people looking for careers in data? Man, there was there was actually such an interesting poll the other day um, on LinkedIn um, done by Jordan Nelson, an another Utah guy. Um, and he's he's not in data; he's just more in in LinkedIn and uh, careers in general. But his poll was like he did a series of three polls, and it was like, um, where do you spend most of your time trying to get a job, like on the job hunt? Where did you get your last job? Um, and I forgot the third question, but basically it was like so out of proportion, everyone's spending like 90% of people are spending their time applying to jobs, even though 66% of people got their last jobs either through a referral or networking. So it's, it was, it was so interesting to me to see that like everyone's spending their time applying to jobs online, but no one's really getting their job that way. So it kind of seems like <laughs> a little bit of a waste of time. Interesting, interesting. Well, and to be quite frank, um, Joe and I, like lots of our clients come to us all the time. We're like, hey, we really need a data engineer. And we have ended up kind of placing people through networking just through, oh, yeah, here's one of our students from our class, or here's someone we knew at another job who left a job. Like, yeah, so it's interesting that in 2021, that's still how the job market works. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. It, it's so weird. Like, I just don't get, it just seems so mismatched, I feel like. Yeah, I totally agree. Like we, we do this, you know, at, at the meetups that I run too. We do a who's hiring and who's looking before every uh, event, and it's interesting. There's a ton of people looking for um, data scientists, analysts, data engineers, and I could I, I think that we the, the people who are looking for work. There's maybe a handful of them, and most of them. Are, I, I always joke there's like a half a person looking for a job actually because they're sort of not actually looking for it. They're just maybe kind of filling out the. Uh, um, you know, the space, but uh, yeah, again, the referrals is a huge one, right? Like I, I think I haven't applied for a job and I'll, well, I haven't had a job in a long time either, but um, <laughs> I haven't had to apply for one for a long time because opportunities come through uh, referrals. So it is interesting that people are still applying. I, why, why do you think that is though? I, I think it feels like you're doing like tangible results, right? Like, e I mean, okay, tangible results. Like you can see it's a application submitted versus, you know, networking, there's not as like a like check the box type thing. Like you can be networking, networking, nothing comes, nothing comes until like the coolest and best thing in the world comes, you know, it just takes time for it to develop. And I feel like you don't feel like it's going anywhere because it's not really going anywhere until all of a sudden it goes somewhere. 
Um, but at least when you're applying online, you're like, okay, I applied to 300 jobs and you have like that tangible metric of like, I like put forth an effort versus like networking. Most people aren't like, I talked to, you know, 20 people and nothing came from it. Like that's not, that doesn't sound very impressive. I don't know. You almost have to have a sales mindset. I mean, that's exactly how you think if you're in sales. It's like, oh, okay, I talked to these 10 companies and none of them were interested today, but maybe they will be in a week. Um, and I, I wonder also if the pandemic has thrown people off their networking game. I, mean, I have to imagine that it has. Well, but I, 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 speaking of the pandemic too, I wonder how much of the application is being um, applications are being driven by people maybe on unemployment or collecting benefits who then have to apply for jobs just to keep up the appearances yeah, yeah, yeah. of That's like, a good point. Like being uh, occupied, right? Yeah. Even though they're uh, living van life or something. So. Um, cool. We got some questions here already. Thanks for the questions. I'll start with George. What's up, George? Um, so, um, what does career growth look like for a data engineer? Not you guys tell me. <laughs> I want to. I, I want to know because I've I've talked to Joe about this before, Matt. I am I am not a good data engineer. I my career as a data engineer would probably not look great. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll let you guys talk about that one. Okay. okay. Well, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I mean. I think it's like a lot of skill, a lot of skills in a lot of uh, domain areas. It comes down to growing skills and responsibility. And I, I suppose part of it is that if you're in data engineering, you have to decide where you want your career to go. Um, do you want to end up at a big fang company doing software development of some so some kind inside a framework? Do you want to be working in open source projects? Do you want to be managing larger teams? Do you want to be doing more on the business side in terms of managing projects? Like there are actually a lot of different types of opportunities you can end up in. Um, you can grow in the domain of cloud skills, for example, where you're more operational maybe. What are your thoughts, Joe? I tend to agree. I don't know that there is a uh, like um, one trajectory for a data engineer. It's because um, it's, it's such a varied field right now yeah. too. I would say that's you know, like I wrote the other day, kind of about like type A and type B data engineers too, where it's sort of a spin on the uh, type A and type B data scientists article that came out several years ago, um, where like A was for analyst, uh, B was for builder. I think the same thing is for uh, data engineers or type A is more for kind of avoiding undifferentiated heavy lifting or focusing on abst abstraction. So that's just combining a bunch of like managed services and stuff, right? Um, and I think on the other hand, you have type B, which is a builder. And that's more people who are like building new systems and, and, you know, coding stuff. So I think there's kind of two forks you can take, but again, data engineering itself is in such a weird uh, kind of inflection point right now, just because I think of the constant abstraction going on in the tooling space, especially. Um, I don't know where it ends up, honestly. Maybe the term data engineer disappears at some point. Like, that's like, possible. It, that's yeah. possible too. But I've said the same thing about data science. I think it only <laughs> becomes more and more prevalent. So who knows? Um, yeah, but good question. Uh, yeah. TBD, I would say, is the answer. Uh, I mean, God. sometimes for some people, it looks like data science, right? Like we do advise yeah. people, like if you have data engineering <clears> skills <throat> and you want to be in data science, data science jobs are hard to get. And I'd like to hear your take on this, Avery. But, but sometimes it's like gain a really good career grounding in data engineering, and then you can try to move in that direction next. And I think a lot of people make that move just as a lot of people go the other way. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, I've never tried to get a data engineering. Actually, you know, it's funny. Did I tell you this, Joe? That Facebook um, reached out to me, you know, a, year, a little over a year ago, and they wanted, they're they interviewing me for, uh, headhunting me for a data engineering role. And I'm like, you guys don't have the right person. Like, that is a terrible decision, but sure, I'll interview. Um, so I, I definitely think uh, it seems like, 
it, it, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, data science has been so hot, you know, for the last you know five years. And I just feel like people just don't talk about data engineering as much. But the issue you run into as an organization is you're like, oh yeah, data science is so cool. And you try to do it and you're like, oh wait, we have no infrastructure and we don't have any way to like let people use data effectively. And yeah, it's like, that oh. sounds so familiar. <laughs> yeah, oh, we need to call Joe and Matt and uh, have them uh, come talk to our, our company. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities now as a data engineer in the next five years, I think it's yeah. gonna totally explode. Um, like not unlike data science, I think it's going to be huge. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Gus has a question. Um, hey, Gus, how's it going? Um, what does the career growth look like for a data technician or data analyst? You want to take this one, Avery? Yeah, sure. Um, to be honest, I'm not super familiar with like what a data technician would do per se. Um, but in terms of like a data analyst, um, I think you can do a lot of things. Um, you know, most most analyst jobs have you doing you know, there's the different types of uh, analytics. And I think data analysts are very good at descriptive analytics, you know, so they're very good at taking a, a bunch of data and summarizing it in one way or another. So, you know, whether that's, you know, using SQL and trying to pull key insights out of that, that bigger data set, or probably what I see more prevalent in data analyst jobs is using some sort of dashboarding tool, you know, whether that's Tableau or Power BI and being able to, you know, kind of explore trends in sort of a dashboard form. So I think I think that's probably most entry roles. And then I think as you build, you know, your career as a data analyst, um, in terms of career growth, I think you can eventually get more into, you know, more complex things, more scripting. And, you know, you use Python, maybe you use R. But it's it's always interesting because the the gap between a data analyst and a data scientist to me kind of just seems like machine learning at the end of the day. And I don't I don't think it's like out of the reach of a data analyst to learn machine learning after, you know, three, three years. I mean, you could even do it earlier, but I mean, I think, I think a career growth for a data analyst sometimes ends up being a data scientist, just kind of like what Matt talked about earlier. Yeah. And to clarify, uh, Gus says that uh, data technician equals entry level before data analysts. So yeah. Thanks for clarifying Gus. Yeah. But, but Joe, you've heard of, and we won't cite any specifics here, but you've kind of heard of jobs trying to keep data analysts from growing in skills so they won't leave the job, right? Like, oh. You were telling me a bit about that yesterday. It's a fascinating yeah. conversation I had with somebody at a company that I won't name, a person I won't name, but it was um, it was an interesting conversation where this person was running an uh, analyst team, and um, they intentionally uh, didn't want their analysts learning R or Python. Because then that would be a flight risk. So they kept them in Excel. Or even advanced um, SQL. They yeah, didn't even want to do yeah. sophisticated SQL. <laughs> I thought that was really fascinating. Um, uh, but I guess that happens. Um, you know, and if I mentioned the company, um, I, you know, I, well, which I won't. Um, I think you would be kind of shocked. I think you would be very shocked, actually. Interesting. So, yeah. We, we could totally turn this show into uh, like, a, like a, a data drama show where we like, <laughs> we kind of expose companies in, the, in this type of realm. <laughs> We can get really quick baby with it, man. There we go. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't do it. I, well, I'm not well, encouraging. Find me for all the lawsuits we'll get too. So um, <laughs> yeah, we need some advertisers, I guess, to to back that up. It, that that is really interesting. Um, I mean, that's that's hard as as an employee. I mean, obviously, you want to feel like you're growing, right? That's really frustrating. Um, and you know, I wouldn't want to stay at. A, I think that's a flight risk if you're not letting me grow as an employee. Exactly. That's that's one reason why I left Exxon. Is like I was like you are not letting me grow fast enough. So sayonara, I'll go do my own thing. You know, that's uh, I mean, that's, that's sad. They, uh, they had that situation. I'm, you know, I'm stoked that you uh, took the liberty to go and 
learn because really that's, that's the one thing we notice that people want um out of a, a data career it's a chance to learn and to grow yeah um like we've uh, been hiring on, on at ternary and, and i think that the main attraction is we give people unlimited growth opportunities to learn like it's actually required on the job is you're going to be learning all the new stuff uh if you don't like go work work at Exxon. Um, yeah. Well, we pay so, people for certifications because we have to have them for our partnerships, for example. Yeah. And it, and it only benefits us if you're, if you're more capable and more knowledgeable, like I don't, you know, I, I know for us, we don't want the lower capabilities and somebody who's not learning, like, but how does that help us at all? Like we want somebody who's, you know, um, would, would scare us in terms of their competency and, and continuous learning, right? Like that's, I think we should all be pushing each other in that way, but it's kind of the zero sum mindset that kind of bugs me yeah. a lot with, uh, you know, the job market and stuff and then skills, right? Like I have to intentionally keep you lower just so that, you know, I can make myself look better or, you know, you don't leave, which it's, it's interesting. So um, Edward asks, uh, how long does it take to go from data engineer to consultant? Is there a better path? Uh, hmm. I, I, I think maybe so from, I, I, I uh, hey, Ed, how's it going? Um, I, I think in your particular case, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, I would say definitely have some goals as a consultant. Um, it's, and maybe find a niche as well, but I think this is kind of general advice really in, in data and, and any other practice really like, as they say, the riches are in the niches. Um, trying to be a, an all purpose, uh, something or other is probably not going to be the path that I would recommend because then you're kind of all things, all people. What, what do you guys think? Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Oh, go ahead, Avery. No, I am 100% with you. Uh, I am, I'll be living proof right now that the uh, riches are in the niches because I have no niche whatsoever, man, let me tell you. And it's, and it's awful. It's not a good thing to, to do because you, you get really, uh, I mean, I'm st I just started this like in officially in like January, February. Um, and man, I, I took on all sorts of projects. I had an NLP project. I had a dashboarding project. I had like a JavaScript project and it's your mind's all over the place. Cause you're doing three projects at once. Um, you're not like ever getting good at one thing because the new, the next project you get, you're learning from not scratch, but you're, you're not building on your necessarily the tech skills on top of each other. Sometimes there's overlap, but that that's really hard. Um, so I think, I think you're right. Getting really good at like certain things makes you a very valuable consultant. Um, the other thing is, and my, my take maybe is a little controversial, um, but I don't think there's like necessarily a time frame associated with it, like five years or two years or three years, but like, it's more when you feel comfortable running an entire project by yourself and you maybe never feel com that comfort completely, you know? Um, so the way at least I started was I started super small. I started on Upwork, you know, just like I didn't have to find jobs. I took a small job. I didn't charge that much for it, just to build up my confidence, you know, and eventually got to the point where I was like, oh, I can do this. This isn't that bad. And I built up my clientele. So I, I think starting small is always a good thing, kind of starting on the side. It's a lot more safe and you build up skills as you go. Yeah. The other thing I'd add to that is that <clears throat> to be a consultant, um, if you have a job and you're like in demand at your own companies, so in other words, you have high value skills within whatever company you work for. From the tech side, you're ready to be a consultant. The hard part is the business side, and that's mm -hmm. fundamentally it's a sales problem. In other words, like Joe was saying, the riches are in the niches, so you have to find the companies that want what you offer, whatever specific skill set that is, and that's hard. That's the sales problem. Um, I would there's 
Jonathan Stark is really good at this stuff. He's kind of oh, a yeah. consultant for consultants. He has a podcast called Bitching Hourly where he talks about you know bidding fixed price contracts to do specific work. If you're interested in getting into consulting, I would definitely recommend checking out just kind of all his material. Sure. Jonathan Stark's a godsend. I think yeah. when we found this podcast, it changed everything. Because when we started consulting, I think we yeah. took the traditional route of, oh, let's just do implementation work for people. Let's be an SI, you know, and the like, button chair hours and time and materials. Hourly. Hourly, right? Along. We got out of that real quick. One, we hated it. We felt like we yep. just had a job, basically. And it's like, if I want a job, I'll go get a job somewhere, right? The other piece of this, though, and here's a secret in consulting, is it, you, know, you make more money when you don't touch a keyboard. If you're giving advice for strategic work, you're able to charge more money. The moment you start hitting a keyboard and, and uh, writing code, um, you become mortal, right? You become another engineer and you become a, a kind of an overpriced engineer, probably, in some people's eyes. And so we found, you know, by offering strategic advice, um, you're able to add more value to a client as well as, um, you know, increase what you can uh, feasibly charge. So that's uh, one thing I would say, like, you know, again, the niches or I would say that the, um, the path you, you'd probably want to go on a progression, I would say, is more towards architectural work at some point or um, providing advice, not just doing um coding work, because that's a race to the bottom, right? Because that can be outsourced all over the world now. Like you're competing now, instead of competing, you know, with, with a dozen or so people who are, you know, awesome, right? And, and have a unique capability. Now, if you're coding and doing commodity work, you, you're literally competing against millions and millions of people around the world. And it literally is a race to the bottom in terms of how much you can charge and quality. Because the lower you charge, the lower your quality is going to be. And it's a spiral that's really hard to get out of actually. And so I, I would just avoid that type of work if possible. So I uh, hope it didn't scare you too much. Um, so in other words, but, you, you know, can totally I, do it, but check out a few resources. <laughs> there is, a, you know, and I would say too, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other paths you can go on, right? So the data engineering, I would say it's, it's a weird one to brand right now, because I think it's yeah. still a lot of questions about what is data engineering and how can that help me? But I think, you know, as Avery described earlier, when you're, a data scientist at a company and you realize you don't have the architecture or the foundation to do your work, then you kind of realize where you get the data engineering. So uh, Darsh has a question here. What open source tools um, could you recommend as a must have for a data engineering role? Um, I'm gonna go off on a limb and say like Git, um, Python, Java, SQL, uh, shell scripting and stuff. Um, but I'm gonna open this up to a broader, like what do you think are the important open source tools for data in general, right? Um, well, I, yeah, I think Python and Git are obviously, um, you know, SQL also very important for all sort of data roles. Um, in terms of, you know, this is useful in data science, but in my mind, this is kind of where my skills lack in the data science realm. And if you can get like really good at the, all the cloud stuff, you know, like I know you guys talk about, you know, your GCP all the time or Azure, um, like if you can get really good at those, that is a good niche to get into because those jobs and those tasks are super high in demand. And from, at least from my side, at least the data science side, there's not that many people that are actually that great at them, you know? So if you can become a data scientist with that really good niche, like, oh yeah, I'm really good at GCP deploying, you know, models or dashboards on GCP. I think that that's a great place to be in any of those public cloud places. I mean, if you can learn those skills, you, you can make a, a pretty penny or two. And then I would add like one of the most important skills for data engineering, modern data engineering has nothing to do with the direct processing of data itself. And that is orchestration that is managing all these processes, which is also a cloud skill because increasingly 
you're not writing really complex Spark code. You're just using a cloud framework of some sort to do the job, but you still have to orchestrate that, make things happen reliably on a schedule. And so the, the dominant player in orchestration right now is still Airflow. Um, there are other up and coming tools that you could also look at, um, like Prefect and Dagster. And I feel like if you know one of those orchestration frameworks really well, you should be able to find a job. Like the trick is to find the right company that's using the tool that you know, but you should be able to look around and find someone who needs those skills that you have. Yeah, I would say orchestration underpins a lot of uh, data engineering at this point. We actually call it one of the undercurrents of the data engineering lifecycle, um, which we'll be making a blog post about really soon. So. There's other things I would say, it depends on the type of company you're working at, right? If, if your company has a lot of real-time requirements, I would say, you know, open source, learn Kafka or Pulsar. Um, you know, if, if it's more kind of heavy uh, analytics um, focus and maybe DBT uh, for transformations and stuff, but it entirely depends on your use case. I don't know if there's like a, a one tool to rule them all sort of thing. That's why I mentioned the languages uh, at the beginning, because I think that sort of underpins everything else. Like if you're good at Python, you can pick up these other tools. If you're good at SQL, you can pick up these other tools, same with Git, Bash, you know, all this other stuff, right? Git, uh, yeah, so those are the basics. Um, and then from there, I would say it entirely depends on what type of company you're working at. So good question. Yeah. It's interesting, if you're job hunting, I mean, I feel like you can find a data engineering tool that you really enjoy and just get good at it. And then it does become a sales problem, right? Like finding, someone needs that skill if it's in demand, but like finding the company that needs it can be tricky. It's a sales problem though, and, but it's also, I think a, a, you got to understand too that you can't pin yourself to a technology too yeah. hard because these technologies are very transitory, right? Like I, I put a two-year expiration date on most um, tech, if you, you know, technologies. Uh, so if you're, if you're like the Hadoop guy, right? Like that was probably useful back, you know, up to about 2015. And then the world started changing. Is Hadoop uh, out now? Am I? Am, is yeah, that, is that... I would say yeah. If you're if you're getting into data engineering, I would not recommend like you know going into Hadoop and Yarn and we, all that stuff. So, we just implemented a Hadoop data lake at Exxon when I left. I relate. Oh, yeah, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't surprise me one bit. <laughs> uh, you all deal with uh, dinosaurs and stuff, so I guess it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's true. We are in the dinosaur business, aren't we? <laughs> Where you see Hadoop still is in these managed frameworks like Elastic MapReduce and DataPack on Google Cloud. But the difference is that there's like way less management of Hadoop itself because it's just very turnkey. And mostly you're focused on like Spark or whatever framework you're running on top of Hadoop. And, you know, five years ago, this was not the case. Like you really needed to build your own, own cluster and understand everything about it. So, Yeah, like I saw there, you know, the other day I saw like, um, you know, like somebody was asking about like interview questions for Scoop or something, which is like a Hadoop. Tool and it's like that. I don't think that comes up at all these days. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, you know, it, it is what it is. Depending, on, like I said, it always it it depends on the company you're you're working at, right? Or trying to hire, get hired. Yeah. To. That question might pop up at Exxon. Who knows? You it know? could. Totally you you want to know a fun fact? Um, we didn't, and I'm I'm exposing all of Exxon's, uh, you know, isms and and stuff. Uh, we didn't have one data engineer at Exxon. I didn't know one data engineer. There was zero people with the title data engineer. Hmm. So we what had, were their titles? Yeah. Uh, like, what was what was his like like an IT specialist or like mm. or like a senior like uh, software developer? And they were doing, mm. you know, we we had we had architects. So I guess I I take that back. I mean, the, the, you know, cloud architects do have in my mind they're you know a niche of of data engineering. Mm -hmm. But there was like not one person I knew who was like you know Joe Schmuck data engineer. 
Interesting. Yeah. So they're probably doing the role. They just didn't have the title maybe is what it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but I mean, also another thing is like, yeah, I don't know if they, they, they definitely were doing data engineering. I mean, obviously we we built data stuff, Um, but we never like hired as far as to my knowledge. And once again, like I was kind of in a special place inside of the business. I wasn't in the, the, the IT. That's another thing that, you know, that was frustrating at Exxon. I'm sure it's frustrating at all companies, but when you're when you're non-traditionally an IT company, how but you need to exist and do IT things. It's there's always tension between the IT team and the actual business, mm-hmm. and you know overlap between the two. So I wasn't actually embedded in the IT like division, so I could be dead wrong. But I obviously interacted with them a lot, and I just never I never heard of us hiring a data engineer. It was always like mm-hmm. someone with like a master's in computer science, and they ended up doing data engineering things, which is fine. Like, obviously you don't need, you know, to be a data engineer prior to being a data engineer, but I just thought it was interesting. Kind of reminds me of like a uh, like data science. Like I think older roles were probably data science roles back in the day, but obviously you didn't have the title <laughs> back in the day either. So, but yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Um, uh, Namara, um, hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, Hi, joining from Zimbabwe. Oh, thanks for joining. That's awesome. Uh, what can I do to get exposure to an end-to-end big projects? What do you guys think? I love I love what Matt's been saying. That he's it's he's been kind of saying this a couple times. It's it becomes a sales problem, and I don't think um, that I realize that, especially coming out of college, that like your career is highly dependent on your sales and marketing skills. Like yeah. that is a huge part of your career. Um, and you, the more like you learn about marketing and the more you learn about sales, the actual better your technical career can be, um, just because it's something that a lot of technical, technical people don't think about. So whenever I think about like, how do I get a project noticed? Well, you have to follow proper marketing skills. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I tend to agree. And I find a lot of that within companies would be things like, you can run seminars or small groups where you talk about the stuff you're working on and communicate. Um, in that respect, it's a lot like graduate school. I, I used to be in academia, but you can, you know, you can set up some kind of a talk to discuss the stuff you're working on. And then beyond that, I mean, the sales part is just like going around and talking to people about things you're working on, like meeting a lot of people in the company, both on the technical and business side and explaining how your project is awesome and how maybe your team could help with their project and things they're interested in. What if you don't have a job? Yeah, I think it's better if you don't have a job. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, like uh, you, the internet is your oyster. Like the internet has made this so much easier to get noticed. I mean, yeah, I I can't imagine like okay, I did this cool project. You know, let's say twenty years ago, I did this cool project twenty years ago, and I'm I'm looking for a job inside of data science. Like, how do I like share that to people? I'd have to I'd have to rely kind of on like your network type mm. uh, meetings, like go up at meetups, Python meetups, data science meetups and try to speak there or just like talk to the people there. But now like you post that on Medium, you know, you can get thousands of people to see it. You post it on LinkedIn, you talk about it on LinkedIn, you can get thousands of people to see it. And it's all kind of a numbers game. Like you just need the right the right one person to see it and it could change your life. Interesting. Rabbit, what's up my man? Um, Rabbit has a good question here. Um, uh, can you um, give some insight on the MLOps boom? Um, what's next? ML ops. Seems like you can't go anywhere these days without hearing about it. 
What do you guys think? I'm I'm not super like once again, I think um this is where I kind of lack as a data scientist. Like I am not great at productionizing models. Like that's something that, you know, that, that fringing on the, the, inter, the interplay between a data scientist and a data engineer. Um, so I'm not great at it, but I think that goes to show its importance. Um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of data scientists in the world and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I have a master's in data science and the amount of times that we put a machine learning model into production inside of all of my education is maybe one, you know? So mm -hmm. like, it's just not something that's taught that well or taught that much. So obviously there's a big need for it and there's not that many people can do it. So that, that's where I see the boom coming from. I don't know. What, do you agree, Matt? Uh, let's see. I mean, I, I feel like data ops and ML ops have come out of problems of maturity, maybe if that makes any sense. Like just companies kind of hit a wall on being able to keep their, even if they productionize a model, the model is breaking and they're not noticing or data pipelines, you know, it's the classic enterprise problems of like you have established ETL pipelines and data quality is breaking at some point because data is very like chaotic. It constantly changes behind the scenes. And so I, I also, I'll say that I, I feel like ML ops and data ops are very closely related. Um, they have slightly different problems, but really not so different. On the data ops side, we look at things like data statistics to look for data quality issues. On the ML ops side, we're looking at model metrics to see if models are performing correctly. So maturity is an interesting one. I mean, but if you look back to where DevOps spawned as well, right? It was it got its inspiration actually from like lean manufacturing and, and these kind of process, you know, processes back in the day. Um, the whole notion is basically continuous improvement, um, lowering defect rates and error rates. Um, so, I mean, the, it, it makes sense that this uh, DevOps would now be applied to machine learning because I think it's at that point. Um, whereas, you know, back in the 2015 era, 2015 to maybe 2018, it was all about just, you know, how do I train models? But I think the world's moved past that a lot too, where now it's like you, you can train models really easily. I don't think that's like the question anymore. It's like, what do you do with this model? How do you retrain? How do you uh, observe, monitor, um, data drift, concept drift, everything else, right? So this is I think, becoming more and more and everything else that goes into uh, MLOps. So I think it's it's still a very, very new field. I mean, I've seen some uh, templates and diagrams from like the um, you know, the AI uh, Infrastructure Alliance and stuff. And I think there's, they're doing some cool stuff, but it's still super early days. Um, as to your question of what's next, I, I think it's only up from here. Um, MLOps is going to be, uh, alongside data engineering, I think it's going to be the two big booms. And I, I, I can see some overlap with them. I, I think that there might actually be sort of a collision course with uh, data engineering and ML engineering. So I figure they're actually basically the same thing, slightly different problem space. But when you look at under the hood of what they're trying to do from an observability standpoint or anything else, it's like uh, the problems, um, details are slightly different, but the methodologies are basically the same as you would in uh, software engineering as well, right? Observing, monitoring, um, you know, incident response and all the other stuff, right? It's, these are basically the same practices. So I could see these are actually on a collision course with each other. They're basically subsets of each other. Yeah. So, and, and I think, yeah, I think you could even also going back to the whole topic about, you know, niching down. I think if you're, you know, if you're a data engineer or data scientist, or even, you know, someone who wants to become a data professional, I mean, I think that's a great niche to have. You're, you're kind of like in between, you know, a data scientist and a data engineer, it's it's a weird operating, it's like on the fringe of, of both, you know, because you're dealing with ML, but you're dealing with like 
cloud systems and productionizing. I just don't think there's a lot of players in that space. And obviously, it's it's like you said, it's only going to get bigger. So I think that's that's a great niche to to specialize in. It's a great niche. There's a lot of money floating into it too from VCs. Yeah. If you have an MLOps company, like you'll you'll probably get funding. I think if it's uh, halfway decent. So well, it's like we, I was saying earlier. Um, these tools like Great Expectations, you're right, Joe, like that no tool is forever. Maybe it will last for 20 years or maybe two years. You just don't know. But I feel like you're really not going to hurt your career by learning these observability platforms and then advertising that capability. Mm -hmm. And then someone will hire you to be the specialist in Great Expectations, for example, in statistical data monitoring. Yep. I'm seeing a lot of friends getting hired as uh, ML engineers now. And I yeah. think that actually pays more than data engineering. So if you wanted to you know, chase the dollars, uh, become an ML engineer. Um, even if you aren't one, so uh, that's career advice for today. Just uh, make chase the money. Yeah, <laughs> it does help, um, but obviously, do something that you like to do as well. Don't just go into ML engineering and slap a title on you just because you think that's uh, what the cool kids are doing. Um, even if they are, you might not might not like the work either. So, um, Edward has a uh, question. Uh, not expecting an answer today. If my company has Airflow, data prep, and Looker models, can DBT still add value? It seems to me that too many tools at some point has to become a problem. Um, yeah, so so one thing I'll say here is that DBT is kind of complementary to tools like Airflow. Um, in principle, they both, you're kind of building DAGs with both tools, but DBT has a very, very different focus, and it's a common model to run DBT within Airflow itself. Uh, Data prep, like I really, I really like data prep, um, but it's kind of, it has a different intention. I, I really enjoy like getting a data prep and visualizing the data and then drilling down, building a series of steps to clean it. Um, DBT is much more SQL focused, basically increasing the power of SQL. And I feel like there's generally room for both. Uh, but but I agree with you that like having too many tools at some point does become an issue. You just get tool sprawl. I, I don't know. What do you think about this, Joe? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on how you're modeling your data. I, I think to a large extent, you could probably just do all this in Looker if you're trying to do, uh, but I think it, where, where do you want to um, have your semantic layer and your transformations, yeah. right? So um, I mean, you could do a lot of what I think you could do in DBT and Looker um, if you wanted to, or you could, or a lot of people use both together. Yeah. So. Explain, explain this Looker thing to me, because um, I've only seen Looker as a dashboarding tool. Is it also like a data modeling tool? Yeah, so underneath the hood, there's a um, they actually have a uh, a layer called uh, LookML, which allows you to um, define. This is pretty cool. You might like this actually. So you can define variables. Um, so in SQL, right? You know, it, it's very uh, declarative. Um, so you can't really define variables per se. But in LookML, you uh, can define things once and then reuse it. And so you could define things like a customer, customer sales, for example, right? Common problem in industry where it's like I have no idea how to calculate customer sales, and everyone has their own version of it. So you can you can uh, write one definitive um, version of that calculation and then reuse that variable elsewhere uh, in your um, code. So mm. that's pretty cool uh, for very obvious reasons, right? It contains the problem of uh, drifting definitions. Interesting. That that that's interesting because I've I've mostly heard Looker pitched as like a BI tool. I didn't know mm -hmm. that it had more. I mean, obviously, all of these BI tools struggle. Like you can't just plug the data in and it's going to work nice for, you know, insights. You have to do some sort of, of back end towards it. And I think they all, like, I don't know how many of these started as 
you know, BI companies and then added the the data, you know, cleaning or the data structure, data modeling part or, or vice versa. But it is it is an interesting problem. Like even I mean, even Tableau, right? You have to have your data is not always clean when you plug it in. And so you have to have some solution for people who don't know how to clean it otherwise. So it's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. But yeah, the whole goal with with Looker is to maintain business logic consistency so that if you have, you know, 20 different reports and different analysts building them, they can all pull from these standard definitions, which of course, is a classic problem you've probably seen if people are doing ad hoc SQL. On the other hand, I, I think it would be very difficult to like do all of your data modeling with Looker without some underlying pipelines to like pre-transform it. And that's mm -hmm. where tools like DBT and data prep are going to come in. But at the end of the day, though, like, you know, the um, like DBT or Looker is both going to, uh, you know, push the um, uh, transformations really at the data warehouse level anyway. It's going to rely on the computation under the hood to do that. Um, crunching. So, Chris, um, yeah, DBT can be called by Airflow. What's up, Chris? Big up, London Massive. Um, inside joke. So, uh, each of the tools can provide different capabilities. Totally. Yep. Um, got a big celebrity watching us. Data professor, Shannon. What's up, man? Good to see you. Very cool. He's, uh, it's kind of late over there right now, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, somebody, somebody go. Um, Mike Nash, uh, what's up? How you doing? Uh, came in late to the stream. Uh, all I heard was chase the money. Um, <laughs> so, you came uh, in the right part then. Do right. you get paid for data engineering? Thought you did it for the love. Um, uh, no, we don't get paid at all. So I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, I would say it, it, this thing does bring up a good point. I want to get you guys to take on this. I mean, how much of your career decisions um, and uh, I would say trajectory should be based upon money versus uh, um, actual love for the type of work you're doing. I'd love to get your take on this. Man, I when I was in college, so I'm originally a chemical engineer. Um, that was my undergrad. And uh, in college, I mean, you're just like, I want to make as much money as I possibly can. And as a chemical engineer, you have to, in order to do that, you basically work for an oil major. So that was like my whole goal. I was like, man, I want to work for an oil major. I'm like, they, they can have me scrape the poop out of like the reactors and I'm, I'm going to do it if they pay me six figures. Like I'm in. <laughs> And, and then that ended up happening, not, not the whole scraping thing, but like I, my whole outlook on life changed. I was so bored and so miserable some days. I was like, it does not matter. Like the, your life, you work 90,000 hours in your life. Like, do you want to do something you hate for those 90,000 hours or you want to do something that you love? And so, I mean, I think there is a balance between the two. Cause I, I don't like, I'm not, I love soccer. I love sports. You don't see me like playing in like the sixth division U.S. soccer league, right? Like that's there's no money there. But I I did something that I enjoy more with that pays a little bit less probably right for right now. But like I am so much happier doing that. Yeah, and I feel like in the traditional tech path that data engineers tend to get into, um, some people really enjoy working for the big thing companies. Some people really do not <laughs> talk to and have left and taken a big pay cut to be somewhere else where, where they'll enjoy the job a bit more. It's interesting too, to watch this big cultural shift during the pandemic, where a lot of people are basically saying, hey, I want, it's not just a job, it's also a lifestyle question where I wanna be working from home at least part of the time and I'm gonna leave this job to do it. Like I'm gonna take a pay cut so that I can be at home and see my kids and more often basically. Yeah, you saw a lot of uh, what they call table flipping occurring during the pandemic. I think yeah. people just got the realization like, you know, like. I could probably die at any moment too. We're in a pandemic and what are we doing with our time? Yes. Right? And so, you know, I had a bit of an, uh, you know, unconventional upbringing where I, I, 
uh, skipped college for a while and just went climbing, you know, I thought that was fun, but I, I think it, you know, um, uh, I think I also realized too, kind of what I wanted to focus on really. So I've always been in data, but that was cause I, you know, uh, love this field and it's kind of all I've ever done. So, you know, on the weekends I'm reading about it and studying and nerding out still, cause it's like what I like to do. Right. Um, and making money, I think is a good side effect of that. So if you can find an intersection of like what you like to do and making money, then that's awesome. I know a lot of people have very, you know, weird jobs. Um, so I know rock stars. I know people who are professional, you know, athletes and stuff and, you know, they get paid and are recognized for what they do. And that's awesome. You know, you don't have to just do the cookie cutter uh, thing that everyone tells you to do. In fact, I would say maybe do that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, and then it says, uh, you know, kids for two hours a day plus weekends is awesome um 24 7 not so much yeah i get it you got kids it's it's a lot of work but i love your kids too um chris he uh does it for the love of money and data uh yep <laughs> so but yeah I, you know I, I, everyone's got their own way of doing stuff you know on uh, motivations so um yeah it's it's, uh, it's interesting though and that's i think kind of where the career advice comes in too because it's not just like how to get a job but i think how to get a job you, you, you'd be interested in pursuing and, and growing in and I think becoming the best at like I, I, I my advice is like find a field and find something you want to do where you can become the best version of yourself in that in that type of a role right like to me that's fulfillment um but for others that's not it at all some people just want to you know cruise around in their van and that's also cool I think that you know the, the pandemic showed one thing it's like there's not really a conventional way of doing stuff like everything you thought was a convention is pretty much just a lie actually so um, the sooner you, you understand that, I think the sooner you're finding a way to doing something that you actually like to do. So yeah, I'm a I'm a my current situation is definitely a product of the pandemic. I you know, I quit my job during the pandemic. I moved back to Utah where I'm from from after the pandemic. Like it it definitely changed my perspective on on things in life and made me realize, you know, there's more to life than just making money, although it's part of it. Like you, you gotta do that to survive. But and I, I liked what a data professor said here. That yeah. this, what's that? I don't. Ikagi is that how you say it? Yeah, um, it's it's like the pursuit of happiness or something yeah. in Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen like this awesome Venn diagram that like explains like it's like yeah, what you love, what you're good at, what you can be paid for, and what the world needs. Like that's what everyone kind of is trying to find, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you're trying to find some people. I, I'm sure there's people that try and find the intersection of what they hate, what they, what they really suck at, um, <laughs> what they can get paid not a lot for. Oh um, man, I don't want to so, be that person. <laughs> but you know, it's, uh, and, and Jessica says it's, uh, it's all the, uh, it's all the matrix. Yep. Totally. Um, yeah. For people who are wondering how to pronounce, um, uh, uh, this is Ikigai. This is how you pronounce it here. Ah. But yeah, I, I I think implicitly this is what everyone's you know striving for, and in Japan, I, I you know this is uh, something that I, people talk about. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So you know, what, what's some other career advice, uh, data career advice, um, Avery? Oh man, I I got a lot. Um, I I think I like what you said. Like sometimes the most typical path is not the path that you should take, even like for the most growth, which is which is so crazy. I grew up my whole life just thinking like you know, like, okay, I got to go to college and I got to get a good job. You know, like I, that was like drilled into my brain. Um, but I've seen a lot of friends be really successful doing something completely different. You know, they, they went a completely different path. Um, 
and now I've seen a lot of success in my career. You know, I'm launching this this boot camp. I I run my own you know little analytics firm, and all of that now, or at least like at least a lot of the sales part, is because I've grown my social media presence. You know, um, which is something that no one teaches you. No one teaches you that. You know, no one's like, hey, you can you can you know doors can open if you have social media and you like you put out good stuff to the world. Good stuff can come back. No one taught mm-hmm. me that. Um, so I just think there's a lot of avenues to reaching you know a good place in your life and going to college working a nine to five at a desk isn't isn't the only one it's definitely one of them but it's not the only one what do you think madam I and you had kind of an unconventional uh <laughs> very unconventional path. <laughs> path so well. here's my path i don't know if you know this avery but uh i actually got a phd in math and uh, then i took some teaching jobs so I, I taught for a number of years um i was kind of looking at taking what's called a career track position which is so getting a tenure track position is now and has always been extremely hard um, at a research institution. And so this position was kind of like contracts for a couple of years at a time. I was just about ready to like commit to that. And then the department chair kind of came and talked to me. He's like, look, this job, this is a good job. The pay is good. However, my concern is that, you know, the legislature can change, that the state budget can change. Like these are not permanent jobs. And then you can kind of be left hanging. And so then one of my friends who was in my same PhD program, um, invited me to basically come work with him. And so I did that in the data science space. And then in that job, I ended up kind of migrating into data engineering because that's what we needed. Like we really didn't have the kind of infrastructure we needed. And then I was looking at getting into consulting actually after doing that for a couple of years. Cause I'm like, I, I'm not loving this corporate environment thing. I like the work, but like the, the politics internally at a company can be a bit weird sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, so then I, I looked at, you know, just kind of going out on my own and then uh, a mutual f- friend of ours uh, connected Joe and I, and we started a business doing this instead. I, I will say, I mean, I'm very privileged, right? I've had a lot of opportunities. On the other hand, um, if you build your career and you build your skills, those opportunities can be out there if you're willing to think outside the box a bit, if you're willing to at least consider doing something outside of a traditional corporate job, then opportunities can arise that way. So. Yeah, they can. I remember I was at a, a Berkshire Hathaway meeting once and uh, yeah. somebody asked Warren Buffett what the best investment is, you know, because I think what's the best investment for a hyperinflationary market is what the question was. And he's okay. like, it's kind of the wrong way to look at this. Um, the best investment you can make in any market is in yourself, is what he said. And I always thought that was like the best advice I've ever heard, period. Yeah. Like if you can become the best version of whatever it is that you do, um, you can charge whatever you want, no matter what happens in the economy. Right. If you're trading dollars or the dollar collapses and you're trading gold or, you know, uh, bushels of buckwheat or something. Bitcoin, like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you'll get paid. So I think that's, you know, and that kind of fits with, um, you know, what Mike asked here uh, when learning on live jobs. I guess that means when you're on the job, is it better to focus on things you can do or things you want to do? Um, my answer to this, I think you should always focus on what you want to do and try and orient towards that. Um, if you get caught in the moment, you're going to get caught in the moment. Not to say you shouldn't focus on the things you have to get done because that's kind of your job. Um, but uh, what, do you, what do you guys think about this? Yeah, I think I think you're right. You got you to gotta keep up with your current role and your responsibilities. Like you can't just like not do those, obviously. Otherwise, you're probably not going to have that job for very long. Um, but I, I'm a huge fan of having like doing the things that you want to do. Um, and it's about finding a place that lets you do that, right? Maybe that place that we we're talking about earlier, you know, where it wants the analyst to stay an analyst. They don't, they don't want you to do the things that you want to do. Um, but when I was, when I was at VaporSense, they always let me do what I wanted to do. And I freaking loved it. And it helped my career so much. 
at Exxon, I did the things that I wanted to do um, and it got me in trouble a lot of the time. So I think like finding the right balance at a, an employer where they like let you grow and let you try those things. But like I said, I, 90,000 hours, I'm not doing something I don't want to do. Like, and I, 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 I am in a privileged place to say that, you know, but like I worked hard to like try to get in a place where I can spend my 90,000 hours doing something I actually enjoy. And I, I hope I like my biggest prayer is like everyone can do that, you know? Um, and it's not always that simple, but I think that's a good goal to have is to spend those 90,000 hours doing something you, you enjoy. Let me add one category to this as well. So we've got things that you can do and things that you want to do. And the, the third would be things that you should do. So in other words, by that, I mean, do things that are actually helpful to your employer. Um, oftentimes, the things that people task you with aren't, aren't really that. Well, they, they work, right? There's some process that works. But steering the company toward better technology is always a good idea. Um, have you heard of, Avery, have you heard the term resume-driven development? No, that's interesting. What's that? It's a good term. Uh, and that, this annoys the hell out of me. So things you want to do, um, I, I, I guess my point is that you should put some boundaries on yourself and still do things that are good for the company. Because what we frequently, frequently see is people are like, oh, here's a new shiny technology. Let's all adopt that and bring it into the company. And it's a nightmare on multiple levels. Like often the technology they adopt doesn't have longevity. And then you end up having to hire this like engineering team. It's very expensive to try to maintain whatever you built because you can't find people and it turns out that the technology isn't even that useful for what the company is trying to do. Like that happens all the time, both in software engineering, well, in software engineering, data engineering, and in data science, I think. So that, that's a tendency that I really, really push against. Um, but try to align the things that you want to learn with things that are actually going to help your employer. I guess that would be, <laughs> it's just the ethical thing to do in general. Yeah. It's also a pragmatic thing to do, yeah. right? So. And I would also say you know, to extend this, like Warren Buffett had a, a good thing where it's the, uh, the do not, uh, the avoid at all cost list. Yeah. So the, the story goes that he uh, asked his pilot one day, like, okay, so you're flying me around. Like, what do you want to do in life? Like, apart from just flying me around on my plane. He's like, oh, I don't know. So he's like, well, drop the 25 things you want to accomplish in life. And so the pilot did that. And of those 25 items and Buffett's like, okay, so uh, mark the top five and uh, ignore everything else. <laughs> Period. Like, avoid those things at all costs until you've done the five things on this uh, the top of your list. I think that's that's a good guiding principle as well. Like I think all too often we try and do too much, and in fact, you're going to get more by trying to do uh, less. Try and do too little, actually. So it, uh, focus it goes, is pretty key. It goes back to to niching down, right? That's that's a valuable thing to do. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. If you're trying, if you're everything to everybody, then you're nothing at the same time. So. I think that's career advice as well. It's all about branding, right? Like yeah. you, you can only occupy as a brand, brands only occupy one thing in a consumer's mind. Uh, Coca-Cola, for example, right? That occupies something in your mind. I don't know what it is, but it's one thing. It's not both a drink and like a truck or something, right? Like, and so, you know, for your brand though, you got to consider these things. Like what, what space do you want to occupy in somebody else's mind? So cool. Um, well, I think we're coming up in the, on time here, but uh, Avery, for people who want to learn more about uh, what you're up to, uh, I think you have um, something coming up pretty soon, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on Wednesday, I have a, I, well, on Wednesday, yeah, I'm launching Data Career Jumpstart, uh, which I'm really stoked about. It's, uh, it's going to be awesome. It's basically a crash course on what I wish someone handed me when I was first getting into data science. So it, it talks about tech skills, but it even talks more about career skills and just like mm. career, like, like I said, like I try to teach people, like I said earlier, no one teaches you how to market yourself as an employee 
ye or as like an individual. So we, we, we go over that. And to, to launch it on Wednesday, I'm doing my, my top 10 tips for breaking into data science. And honestly, I think eight are non-technical um, out of the 10. So I, I'm really stoked on that, hopefully helping people build their careers into something where they can spend those 90,000 hour, 90, hours doing something they love, you know? Data career jumpstart, that's awesome. Data career um, jumpstart. And for people who want to uh, follow you, how can they how can they do that? Yeah, probably just connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where I spend most of my time. Or you can always check out datacareerjumpstart.com. Um, but I'm, most of the time I'm on LinkedIn. Although I feel like I'm shadow banned on LinkedIn right now. I think they're mad at me. Um, so we'll see if I, I, I stick with the LinkedIn or not. But yeah, LinkedIn for now. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and, and since we're all in Utah, I guess we'll have to go out for a hike whenever the uh, smoke disappears. I know, man. It's It's been tough. I need to, I, we don't live that far. Matt, where are you at? I'm in Salt Lake City. So, okay. Yeah. It's... Yeah. We don't live that far away, but I, I don't get up to Salt Lake enough, man. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, I... we, can, we can come down and get lunch with you sometime or right. something like that, or maybe go for a hike. I think uh, it's going to start cooling off a bit. So yeah, I was planning on doing uh, getting outside and uh, with, with the crew. Um, got a bunch of uh, people here in Utah. I actually got Ben Taylor, Jordan Morrow, uh, you know, countless other people, Tyler, yeah. Volkman, and people. We just all got to get together and uh, get outside. It's a beautiful place. So and if anyone in the audience uh, wants to come visit Salt Lake sometime, uh, feel free to hit Drop us up. Drop us in line, so, yeah. Yeah. Let us awesome. know when you're in town. <laughs> cool. All right, Avery, best of luck with uh, Data Crew Jumpstart, man. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, great chat. So. Yeah, thank you, guys. Nice nice to meet you too, Matt. And, uh, really great to meet you. Yeah, awesome. And uh, we'll cool. try to send people your way. If people are interested in data engineering, you can send them to us. Or yeah, to, for uh, sure. Ben Rogeshon, Andreas Kretz. Uh, yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Shannon says uh, Utah is a city of data science and data and data engineering. Yep, that's it's surprising actually for a small city or a small state. There's actually a uh, pretty, uh, I would say, good concentration of a uh, data talent yeah. here. So, not sure why, but it is. <laughs> so, well, awesome. Uh, we'll have a good day. Thanks to the audience for the questions. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this one. So we'll see you next Monday. Take care, guys. Yep. Thanks. See ya. Take care.